Welcome to the Creative Minds Podcast with me, Callum Hughes. Something for your mind. So, hello everyone. I hope you're all keeping well and safe and sound. In this next episode of Creative Minds presented by myself, Callum Hughes, I'm joined by Kieran Lithgow. Just before I do a brief introduction about Kieran, I would just like to take this opportunity to say thank you to everyone so far this year who has locked in, watched in general, listened back or shared. It was a passion project that I started in the first lockdown and it's something that I'm intending on doing for the foreseeable future. This will, of course, probably be the last podcast that I do in 2020, so I just wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you. Last of all, just before we do start, I just wanted to reach out to everyone and wish you all well for Christmas and New Year. There's no doubt this has been, for most of us, the toughest year of our lives. So... My next guest, as I say, is Kieran Lithgow, who is a senior bioinformatics scientist specialising in virology, phylogenetics, genomics and outbreaks. Kieran's selfless hard work and dedication to this field over the years has earned him accreditations, which includes a degree in biology, a master's in genetics, a PhD in genetics, and he has worked in disease research for 20 years with the last 10 in viral genomics and public health. With everything going on in the world at the moment with COVID-19, I felt it was absolutely necessary and important to bring on my friend Kieran for this next episode. As someone who I only knew on social media at first from working in the music industry, I noticed that after the pandemic broke out and with the constant ongoing developments, Kieran was and still is consistently putting his platform on social media to good use by educating others by breaking down the science as simply as he possibly can. To be clear, this instalment of the Creative Minds podcast is not about forcing anyone to do anything or trying to push an agenda about mandatory vaccines or masks. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion, to educate themselves, and if you wish to challenge the status quo, then that is your choice and you have the right to do so. I am simply doing this to try and reassure people and educate others about the importance of getting their information from reliable sources because we live in an age now where social media is a breeding ground for misinformation and there's no doubt that this can be dangerous at times, especially of course during a global pandemic. Personally, I will always try to be open and honest and I'll hold my hands up myself and say that I've definitely not always been adhering to the rules and policies since COVID-19 hit the UK. I'm sure most of us have questioned the shambolic way in which this government has dealt with the situation and the fact that they haven't held themselves accountable when they've made mistakes. I'm certainly not taking the moral high ground as I've had my own doubts at times, but this is about the science behind the virus. So I'm just going to invite Kieran in now. Hi, Kieran. Hello, mate. How are you doing? All good, thanks, mate. How about yourself? Yeah, yeah, good. All things 
considered. All good. I just thought I'd raise as well before we start the fact that I managed to pronounce everything right in terms of the the, the scientific jargon with um, the terms such as phylogenetics and genomics. And then when I rang you yesterday, I asked, is it live gal or live go? And you said, oh, it's neither, mate. It's uh, it's live. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did have to spend the entire Sunday doing as much research as I can because I myself, I think I managed to scrape a C in applied science at GCSE. I definitely wasn't the uh, the science boffin in school, so I did spend a good few hours. <laughs> definitely, mate. So first of all, just just before we we begin, I just wanted to ask, especially with everything that's going on this year and everything that's still going on now likelihood in, in the first couple of months of 2021 i mean how, how have you been keeping on a personal level with you know trying to work and deal with everything outside of work as well uh yeah so i've been able to work from home since march but it's obviously been a really testing year for even doing that i mean it's, it's been horrendous for people who've either lost their work or furloughed um, but yeah, it's been a it's been a strange year because it's been so restrictive in what we've been able to do, um, and it's just I felt a lot more anxiety than, than I'm used to. I'm not an anxious person, but this this year for anybody, it's created a lot of this anxiety anxiety and just not really knowing when things are gonna start to get better. Um, I'm a very optimistic person normally. I always like to look to the bright side of things, but I've struggled with that this year. Uh, yeah, it's you know, gonna be normal. Yeah, definitely, mate. Yeah, so, I mean, recently things have changed a bit with that. Vaccine rollout has made me feel a bit more optimistic, so... Yeah, no, that that's good. I mean, first of all, I, I just wanted to, to say thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. And to be honest, the fact that you've been putting your platform on social media to, to good use and you've kind of felt that you had that responsibility as someone who probably is considered an expert in this field to, to educate people in, in the right way. So no, thank you for that. And I'm sure a lot, you know, a lot of people would agree with me on that. So just before I do go into the questions, um, I know that generally speaking, all the posts that you've put on social media have been well received. And I know we'll discuss a little bit further later, the, the, the doubts around the, the vaccine and the science behind it and the origins of the virus. But I understand that you've received some abuse from, from a minority of individuals. If you don't mind just elaborating a little bit further on what that's entailed. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly improved uh, over the year. I mean, when it first broke out, there was a lot more noise from really, really weird conspiracy theories. And I was kind of getting into kind of really weird arguments with people. But I think it's not just me. It's anybody who's engaging in this. Yeah. And uh, a lot of noise nutcases out there um, and yeah they just ended up like, blocking them or, or deleting them and things um, there was one post I did a while ago about Bill Gates um, and it got a lot of attention it's definitely the most attention that post I've ever had got um, and it's just basically calling out the, the bullshit around what was being said about him. and um, with that, I got some really strange people coming in, and they seem to have big followings. You know, yeah. They really nasty comments, and they were getting 50 likes within minutes. I thought, Jesus Christ, this is dragging in some kind of major advanced crowd. Yeah. So I've spoken people like that because, you know, you, you, if you're going to get abusive, what's the point of talking to someone? Yeah. Um, 
they're absolute crazy, crazy stuff that we're writing. Uh, but that has improved over the months. I think uh, a lot of scientists have been getting a bit of abuse here and there on social media, but um, it's it seems to have calmed down a bit. I've noticed maybe because I've blocked them all. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. So first of all, before we go into COVID nineteen, I wanted to to go briefly back to the start of your career in science that's led you to this point today. So are you from a medical background within your family and what inspired you to go down this career path in life? Uh, so my dad's have been a, a pharmacist. I think his career was like in 60 years. He's retired now, uh, but he was a pharmacist. And I always found science fascinating when I was a kid as well, having that kind of uh, upbringing. Uh, and my older brother as well did biology at university. He was always, um, you know, informing me of stuff when I was younger. And it was like I had my, dad, my older brother there who were already doing sort of very sort of scientific subjects, jobs and things. Um, and yeah, it's fascinated me from there on really. Uh, then I went and did a degree in biology at university. That seeded even more interest in, in pursuing it as an actual career. Because some people do a first degree and then they can go in any direction. But yeah. I, I, yeah, that's that's good. So, would you say then naturally, with your old man also doing that as a career, that's partly what inspired you to also go down that path? Yeah, definitely. Because he, he's always as well been someone who, who will challenge people who are talking nonsense. Well, so there's always been that element, and using you know scientific factual information to back up your arguments. Yeah. And yeah, I've seen you know the odd argument in a pub and stuff, which was quite amusing. And then you realise that, you know, you've got to, you've got to base in your arguments on facts rather than just like an idiot. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. Probably not the kind of person you want to get into an argument with about science in a pub is the, the man who's a pharmacist. <laughs> well, yeah, especially it's about drugs and things. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you're saying. So you, I understand that, you know, you've got a, a, a decent amount of, credentials behind you hence why I wanted to bring you on you know I wasn't no disrespect going to bring someone on who might have got a decent A level because you know you don't really have the experience and you haven't you know delved further enough to to have you know um, enough um, backing behind you but obviously you did your master's then you did your PhD Um, so how many years did you have to study in further education before you then went into the actual field and did the you know the frontline stuff? So uh, combining the masters, the degree, and the PhD overall was uh, just over seven years. Mm. It was broken up in between my masters and my PhD. I did a two-year position as a research associate, um, so it wasn't all at once. Yeah, it was not break that up. So it was, um, I think, about ten years ago I actually finished my PhD. Yeah, so I'd I'd say then pretty respectable amount of time to uh, to have gone through some due diligence and and, and rigorous testing in order to see if you cut the mustard <laughs> yeah yeah phds are really tough anyone who's done one will know i mean any degree is but uh phds you're really kind of uh, you're your own boss so you really taught to um, have to manage it yeah everything yourself so you're not just doing your own research so it can be quite difficult to get used to that right okay so following on from that then after you finished all your time in further education is it um correct me if i'm wrong is it astrazeneca that you work for the company i don't work for astrazeneca 
yeah, yeah. Right, okay. So if you don't mind, just just talk me through your career path in terms of like your your experience. I know you said you did a bit between was it your degree and your masters or your masters and your PhD. If you don't mind just talking us through the roles that you've done over the years and how you've climbed the ladder and the different organisations that you've worked for as well. Yeah, so uh, after my degree, I mean there was a fair few unrelated jobs, but after about a year of my first degree, I actually worked for a biotechnology company. Um, and they were actually to do with pharmaceutical development in terms of um, antibiotic production. Right. Uh, I was there a short period of time before I decided I wanted to do the masters, and that's what led me into the subject called bioinformatics. And what that essentially is is you're using a lot of uh, algorithms and software to analyse data, and most of that data is genetic data. Right. So you get very used to looking at DNA sequences, alignments, and, and phylogenetics. And you really dive deep into the data of, of the biology, the molecular biology, to uh, determine certain things. So um, the masters itself and uh, the PhD were actually involved in mitochondrial research. So again, looking at gene sequences related to disease to try to determine how they're related. Though um, I don't want to kind of go into too yeah, much. yeah, yeah. I'm losing people. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's heavy genetic data analysis. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see why then in that case you probably had to do the degree, the masters, and the PhD because I think it requires a lot more than just reading a column in the Daily Star. You know? <laughs> yeah. That just baffles me, you know, like the foundational stuff that people work on. And then someone will look at a Daily Mail article, like say, and that's it. That's their research. Yeah, it's crazy to be honest. So. I haven't seen it discussed as much recently, and I know it's something that we discussed briefly on the phone beforehand, but I think the biggest point that people were concerned about for the first few months after the pandemic broke out was questioning the origin of the virus and whether it was man-made in a lab. And I believe now, is it the, the head scientist at the lab in Wuhan has basically invited whoever needs to do the investigation because of these un. un- substantiated claims that you know it was it was man-made did it did it leak from the lab in Wuhan so if, if you don't mind because I, I know you've already said um, and you've always been spot on on social media trying to break down the science as simply as possible just um, elaborating on such a, a complex issue as to in reality how the virus actually probably did start from Wuhan and how really it got to where it is now on, on our doorstep here in the UK. Yeah, I mean, I'll try and break this down into sort of a few separate areas of inquiry and what, where do you think it has originated. The first thing to say about this is we've got a lot of knowledge of history of uh, outbreaks now, where those viruses came from. We know a lot of uh, information on that, and a lot of that is genetic information. So SARS emerged in 2003, um, and that, that was, it took a bit of a longer time to elucidate what was happening there because it was 20 years ago. Uh, but what they actually found out was it was certainly uh, from back, a bat reservoir and that it had jumped into fur animals, pounds of that cat. And they, the, the way they could determine that is by analysing those animals and so showing that they were literally 99.9% similar. So they worked out that that was the direction of travel. Right. There was fairly uh, a lot of other stuff they can do to do that. But um, 
In 2012, MERS coronavirus was another novel virus that emerged. It was a coronavirus from Saudi Arabia. Uh, I'd been working at Public Health England three months. Uh, I went into the uh, office one day. The senior virologist there came up to me and they said, look, all, all hands on deck, stop any work you're doing. We've got a novel coronavirus coming from Saudi Arabia. But, holy shit. <laughs> Didn't really know what it meant, but I just thought it sounded alarming anyway. And then uh, we analysed the date straight away, the, the sequence. And what I what I saw was that it was uh, similar to bat sequences, but it was also highly related. Stars. So we knew it was dangerous, um, and eventually, within months, we determined that yeah, the bat reservoir was was where it was coming from, but it was jumping through camels. So camels were the intermediate species in there, um, and we've always known that increasing in frequency, and this is where these virus come from. Yeah. And with with this one, I mean, first of all, you've got a lot of conspiracies around it being a biopic originally and I think most people agree that that's bullshit now. Uh, a creating this as a bioweapon will be completely ridiculous and it makes no sense at all. But what, what I think people are interested in knowing is uh, was it say a natural secret that they found somewhere sampled and it went into the lab because they collected it from somewhere mm. and it accidentally infected one of the people who worked there. Right. So what you've got there is you, you're sampling and collecting these viruses in dangerous areas, bringing them back to the lab, and it may affect one of the workers. Yeah. But the thing about that is it's still a natural virus that's out in the wild. So, I mean, that's a theory. I don't think that's what's happened. What I think's happened is if people know anything about these wet markets and how they operate and the fur trade, uh, you've got so many different animals that have already been linked to stars. They've already been shown that they can... Uh, be infected with SARS and SARS-2. And these animals are uh, minks. We've already seen minks in Denmark. We've got um, the palms of vets, but we've also got something called raccoon dogs. And they, they, I honestly think if they can get into China, yeah, check the lab, investigate that, but they need to be testing these fur farms, sequencing the animals there, sequencing the fur traders as well who work there, testing for antibodies. Yeah. SARS COVID 2 antibodies in these workers, then we've got a really big signal there. Yeah. We did it in SARS 20 years ago, we found antibodies in the fur trade workers. Yeah. Now that, that's really interesting, mate, and then thank you for, for breaking that down. What do you feel is, well, what do you know from your studies is, is the fundamental difference between, say, when I was growing up, I remember here we had foot and mouth, and like you mentioned, there's, there's been SARS, you know, there, there's different forms of coronaviruses. Why has this one been so devastating in the fact that, you know, it's come from Wuhan, which is thousands and thousands of miles away. It's on our doorstep here in the UK, and we're now in this consistent vicious cycle of, lo- cycle of lockdowns. What is the fundamental difference it's, that makes this so serious compared to other ones? It's, uh, it, I mean, SARS was obviously a big, big concern. It, had, um, it didn't have as such a prominent thing as uh, what, what we've now known is, is asymptomatic transmission. Right. So we're able to identify SARS cases pretty well. So it got to 8,000 cases. It was spreading around Southeast Asia, then got to Canada. And that's the point where it was really close to becoming a, a major pandemic. But they managed to contain because of that element not being a, a fundamental part of SARS-1. So they were able to kind of mitigate that. Um, but with this one, it's got this problem where in about 30 to 40% of people just don't show any symptoms. Mm. If they do further down the line, they may have a lot 
COVID. We don't know that yet. Yeah. Not showing symptoms. You've got people traveling and global travel now is, is it was able to spread pretty much everywhere. Yeah. There's also an important thing that people need to realize about this virus is people keep banging on about the mortality rate being 10.5%, which it, it's looking like it is. Mm. But it doesn't need to be high because if it transmits fast and infects enough people, you're taking out millions quickly yeah i think this is the point that, that people are missing and to be honest i was probably a bit dismissive and like i said at the start of the podcast there's certain parts i refer to where out where i may have previously been guilty a little bit dismissive and, and thank god obviously i came across someone someone like yourself on social media but when people say you know it's only zero point x percent and then there's a difference between 0.5 and then another 0.5 you know, that's the difference sometimes in filling a stadium like Old Trafford several times over. So if you think that's acceptable to let, you know, tens of thousands of extra people die because yeah. you still want to live life as normal. And and that's the mindset that I was in at first. I thought, well, if they're establishing the statistics and the people who were most likely to catch it and maybe be at risk... They're saying, generally speaking, correct me if I'm wrong, it's if you're over maybe 75 or 80, if you have underlying health conditions. So like a lot of other people, I thought, well, how is it fair that my life is being impacted and I'm having to go in a lockdown if I'm fit and healthy, genuinely? I, I, I like a bit of a party, like most people do in the music industry, but I work out four or five times a week. I know that it obviously doesn't look like it, but, um, you know, I, 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 I eat pretty well the majority of the week so a lot of people are questioning well how is it fair that you know young healthy people are being impacted even more so mentally when could you not just go down the route of saying well tell everyone who has underlying health conditions or they're elderly or vulnerable etc to stay at home and we all live our life as normal from a scientific point of view why do you think our government for instance hasn't gone down that route is, is it because there's still a risk of you know, it mutates. If you just let everyone like my age roam around freely and party and do whatever else, but what, why do you feel like they haven't gone down that route? Yeah, I mean, this all goes down to the Great Barrington Declaration, does it? This idea that we should have just gone to herd immunity and just shield all the vulnerable, which in reality, I mean, it sounds great, but in reality, it does not work. And Sweden's proof of that. Um, when we first started putting in these restrictions, obviously it was a brand new novel thing to it. You can't just shield everybody that effectively. You, obviously, we didn't protect the care homes. Um, that was a misunderstanding of asymptomatic transmission. It happened in Sweden as well. They lost a lot of people in care homes for the same mistake. Um, but you've got to look at a lot of communities, uh, especially in the Bain communities, in the Indian culture. You've got people who live intergenerationally. You've got people's parents, grandparents. And that's that's a very cultural thing. So what are they supposed to do with those people? You know, they can't. They can't aggregate them. They're all in the same house anyway. Yeah. It's large uh, communities that live like that. But you'd have a serious problem there. And they've been significantly affected anyway. Yeah. Very, um, yeah, so it's just not realistic. And again, Anders Hegnell, the Swedish epidemiologist, has already said this as well. Because you remember the great Baron Declaration of people who keep pushing this herd immunity idea and keep using Sweden as an example. Yeah, he's not saying the same as them either. Mm. You're saying it's absolutely immoral to not vaccinate and get to her immune. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying, mate. Definitely. 
I did watch a couple of months ago uh, a podcast that, that Joe Rogan did, and he brought on uh, a scientist as well who was discussing why COVID tends to act individuals from the BAME community more than, say, you know, someone like myself who has entirely white, uh, predominantly, I would say, white British um, roots in my, in my family tree. And I know there was mentions around it can be pigmentation or vitamin D. Once again, from your own studies, um, breaking it down as simply as possible, but why is it that it tends to impact certain communities? So that, say if you're um, African-American or, or Asian... So, uh, there, is, there is no biological reason for that. I mean, people have got a bit confused that they think there's a, there's a biology going on there, but there isn't. It's, it's really cultural because of what I've already mentioned, the, the way that some people live with parents and their grandparents. There's also a higher proportion of black and ethnic minority people who work on the front line, who work in jobs where they're more at risk. And that's because of, you know, societal problems where they've not got the same opportunities. Yeah. There is there is a situational cultural social problem, um, and there's there's no biological reason for that. Right. Okay. No. Th- thanks for clearing that up. So the next question was around the variant. So I know that within literally the past week or so, there's been further developments about the the new variant of COVID nineteen, particularly down south. Um, and I do appreciate you've already posted a very well-written status on Facebook, which everyone can access, by the way, if you literally type in Kieran's name um, on Facebook, um, all of his statuses um, are public. But I wondered if you wouldn't mind um, breaking down the the variant and what it means. And because there's a lot of people casting doubt saying, well, why is it only coming out of London? And why is it that London's in tier four, etc.? Yeah, okay, so the first thing about this is, um, yeah, it is concerning, people should be concerned, but, you know, the general public just needs to carry on doing what they're doing, and there's no reason to be panicking. Um, It is concerning, but it's concerning for a few reasons that we need to do further testing on. Um, And one of the major reasons we've been able to identify this variant is because the sequencing that's going on in the UK is, is some of the best in the world. But literally, uh, out of all the viruses we've looked at, I think the UK have done well over 50% of the sampling for it. But there may be variants all around the world that are concerned, but we're not shining a light on them because the, the countries aren't doing enough uh, surveillance. The, uh, a lot of those people involved in, in tracking those mutations are ex-colleagues of mine who are worked at the Public Health England. And there's a guy in the news that people may have seen a lot more of. He's a guy called Professor Nick Lowman. He's a very well-respected world expert in bioinformatics and microbial genomics. And, you know, if he's concerned, then there's real reason to take it seriously. Yeah. Um, The major point about this variant is it's it's, it's a rapid accumulation of mutations which isn't characteristic of what we've seen all year. Right. The virus doesn't mutate, but only at a kind of measured level. 23... In a short space of time, it is, it is it jumps out as a complete different cluster, and there's some of those mutations are in region uh, that are concerned. But they're going to look into that, and hopefully the vaccines will still work. But we, we're going to have to wait. Yeah, I think I did read that 
one of the, the partial concerns was that there's been a vaccine rolled out and being administered and if there's a variant and it mutates, will the vaccine still be effective? But I believe the pharmaceutical companies that are distributing it are confident that they can re-engineer it within a matter of weeks, basically, which, you know, is great news, to be honest. That, that's, that's another good point, because uh, over the, what, nine months to ten months, they've been able to take what platforms that already existed, such as Messenger, RNA, viral vectors, yeah. and, place, and then they had to do all the trials and testing and stuff and, and got the data. And they did that in nine months. So if they need to slightly tweak it, then it, it, just, it just adds on maybe a couple of months of a delay on getting where we want to be yeah no that that's good before we come on to the the point around social media and really how how concerning that's been to be honest throughout the year and, and the level of divide that it that it's caused and, and scaremongering and, and sensationalizing but i was actually watching a, a program last week and i believe there was one of the senior guys from i think it might have actually been astrazeneca that you work for i'm not sure if it was on bbc one or bbc two yeah, yeah, it was, uh, yeah it was um it was it panorama i think i think so yeah but it, yeah, it, it Angelos. He's, uh, he's one of the ceos at astrazeneca yeah but it, it it was really a massive eye-opener because i mean i've I've got, which I'm really grateful for on my mum's side, we've spoken, I've got a, a cousin who, to be fair, she works in uh, solar physics, so it's not relevant to, um, you know, like pharmaceuticals. And I've got an auntie who's, who's a doctor as well, and the same as you, you know, she had to go through eight years of education before, you know, she could become uh, a gynecologist. But it's, it's really disappointing in some respects, you know, that, that people... And there's no doubt, and I'm sure you'd agree, there probably is one or two shady characters in the pharmaceutical company that maybe don't, or, that maybe don't always do things for, for, for the right incentive. It's more, yeah, it, it, it's more of well, exactly. It, it, it's more of a financial incentive, like the same there is with electronic music. There's people who maybe aren't that passionate; they just see it as I'll rip as many people off as I can and, and make as much money as I can. It happens in all walks of life. But, you know, there, there are these scientists that are working day and night, starting work at 8 a.m., and they will literally work through, say, if I started work 8 a.m. this morning, I would work through 1 a.m. the next day, go home, get a couple of hours sleep. Reality is, you know, you're not really seeing your family. Um, I think he got upset, the, the, the senior um, guy, and he said, that you know, I haven't seen my mum in about a year because obviously, you know, my job is, you know, to, to try and pretty much save, I wouldn't say save the world, but, you know, save societies and economies from crashing and try and get life back to normal. And yeah. I do feel like, you know, some people, sadly, um, and that's one point they were making, is it's like anything in life that there's risks to everything. If you're administering a vaccine to millions and millions of people, the likelihood is that there will be the odd side effect, which it takes nothing away from that because, you know, I really do feel sorry for anyone who may have had a bad experience with a vaccine or they may have had a family member who's experienced, you know, lifelong side effects. But it, it's it's the equivalent of if you're in the music industry and you're flying here, there and everywhere, touch wood, it doesn't happen, but there's a risk your plane could crash. You know, you walk down the street, there's a risk you could get hit by a bus. There's... There's risk assessments with everything in life. and People have died in car accidents wearing 
seatbelt and they've been killed by the seatbelt. Yeah. Quite been struck by lightning, but yeah. What occurrences are uh, unfortunately do happen. So um, it, yeah, that, the point you made is, is, is you know that, that it's a very low risk, but very severe. Yeah, I mean, especially when you look at it, I think if we administered about 300,000 in this country and I think there's only been maybe a handful of cases where there's been side effects. But I think they were saying on there, as, as soon as there's any side effects, you know, that has to stop straight away because you can't carry on administering a vaccine if there's going to potentially be more cases of, yeah. of serious side effects. I mean, the, the, t- the trial participant data, I mean, they got to a critical number anyway, so they were getting to like you know forty-five thousand people had been tested. Once you've tested that many people, you've got some pretty important data. Um, and I think they've administered it now to about seven hundred thousand, as far as far as the. Um, and the thing about the side effects is, gonna gonna focus on what what can actually mean. If mild side effects are completely normal, you shouldn't really expect them because you're inducing immune response. So you're going to have some side effect there because your immune response is kicking in to, to a, a, an invasion, if you like. Um, so it's good that you have those mild side effects. Yeah. Severe, severe ones. And I know there's the allergy thing with the Pfizer vaccine, but um, they've, they've been able to determine why that is. And, but it's, it's hopefully going to be fine um, going forward with people with very severe allergies. But again, that's that, uh, the other vaccines are probably going to have no issues with their severe allergies and be rolled out. People get flu jabs who have severe allergies to pets, but they're able to get the novel jab. Yeah. Thanks for that, mate. So, as I say, the, the biggest point that I feel is necessary to, to discuss, and hence why I've brought you on the podcast, to be honest, especially with the fact that there has been further restrictions, people feel very frustrated, particularly during this time of year, and the fact that Especially for me, I'm only 26, and even, to be honest, my parents as well, it's the biggest shock to the system most of us have experienced in our lifetimes, you know, this complete, um, you know, takeaway from normality. But one, one of the biggest problems we've been facing throughout the pandemic is, you know, the spreading of misinformation on social media platforms, blogs, etc., um, as I said at the beginning, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but the rise of social media now means that everyone has a voice. And obviously, you know, that's naturally part of a democratic society. You know, everyone is entitled to to air their opinion and their voice. But sometimes, as you've seen and I've seen as well, those voices can be irrational when people are frustrated with the ongoing situation or, you know, there's very little scientific evidence or factual information to back it up. So... Me personally, before obviously I pose any questions to you, I don't actually tend to watch the news or read newspapers that much in normal circumstances. And the reason for that is I'm sure you'd agree. If you look at most newspapers, a situation that clearly is bad, you know, the difference between half a percent and one percent is, you know, potentially tens of thousands of lives. But we both know that tabloid newspapers will run with certain stories because negative news sells if they put on the front line everything's going to be okay you're not going to buy that newspaper you know headlines headlines will be sensationalized because that's what attracts people that's what draws people's attention so where would you recommend people to get their information from so that it's reliable well like i said i mean the tabloids have done this for a long time 
forever. Yeah. About celebrities, makeup stuff, do some really awful stuff in the past, and the tabloid, the cheaper tabloid sort of names. Yeah, they, they can talk a load of rubbish. But um, some of the more reliable stuff, I mean, the ones that are actually engaging with the scientists doing the work, and they're actually reporting what they say, linking to papers, and you link, you link to actual papers that have been published and peer reviewed. Um, if they're reporting what the, the scientists are saying, then, then that's accurate. Uh, it, if it's a dressed-up kind of hysterical story around things, then you tend to avoid it. But the Financial Times, The Atlantic, um, those two have been pretty good throughout. Yeah. It's because of the amount of engagement you have with science. If there's a lot of data that links to that, and it's, you go to people who have actually got the credentials, um, then you can, you can sort of trust that they're reliable. The problem we've got is, though, the other side of this is... And the reason that these conspiracy theorists are getting quite a lot of um, sort of ammunition, if you like, is is there are actually scientists out there who have credentials who are right on the fringe who are saying some ridiculous things mm. but because of credentials, it's confusing people. You've got the ex CEO of Pfizer, Mike Eden, who's perpetuating a lot of these um, ridiculous ideas for the last few months, and people are going to look at that and think, well, hang on. He's got more qualifications and experience than you. And it's like, well, actually, when it comes to this subject, he, he doesn't have any experience or knowledge at all. He retired in 2011. Yeah. I've checked his LinkedIn to see, you know, what does he know? He's never done any genomics or epidemiology or any of that stuff. He's just, he's worked his way for pharmaceuticals. They've done a certain role and done it well. But in terms of this data, he has no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, and he proved that recently with that infertility stuff he would said about in terms of it was based on sequence homology it was based on and he knows nothing about that subject and he proved it by talking crap. Yeah. I, I feel like this is this is a problem though, because as soon as someone reads nurse, doctor, medical professional, scientist, instantly people will assume that they are an expert in that particular field. But even as someone who hasn't studied science at any great length science is such a broad spectrum that's like saying oh well you know he's, he's been to space so he can comment on a vaccine well it make it makes no sense exactly so now i appreciate you 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 raising that as well and Yeah. A friend who's a digital marketing consultant, he pointed out to me, he says, he's going to be making about five grand a month. And over the course of the year, he's probably beating his day job salary. So if you're financially driven and you don't have any empathy, you can make a fortune. Yeah, of course, because the way you've got to look at it, you're exploiting people's vulnerability. And at the moment, people are incredibly vulnerable because it's one thing that my business partner said, to be fair, is... At the moment, people have a lot more time on their hands, which I know is something that you reiterated as well. We all naturally spend a lot of time on social media because we live in such a fast-paced society where we want everything now. It's been such a shock to the system having to literally go from completely fast-paced to pretty much nothing 
people want answers as to what's going on. When are we going to be back to normality? So therefore, you are going to be more likely to succumb to conspiracy theories. And, and like I say, I'm not doubting all conspiracy theories because in some walks of life, there probably is conspiracy theories out there that do have some substance. But I do feel like at the moment, and it's something that at the first lockdown, because I've spent the past five years just chipping away, grafting, working day and night, doing three, four jobs each week. I was very frustrated. I thought I was literally seeing a decent breakthrough and then all of a sudden it it all just stops. And I feel like, to be honest, that's the reason why a lot of people are succumbing to conspiracy theories, because there is a lot of frustration. People have lost devastatingly businesses, family members, everything else, and, and therefore they'll look anywhere for answers. Yeah, that's right. And these, again, like if you watch The Social Dilemma, and it is a really good explanation of how this is happening. I mean, the algorithms aren't sinister in the fact that they were designed to be sinister, but they, they are literally trying to get your attention all the time. And it's free. Facebook's free. Yeah. But it has to be money from somewhere, and that comes from the advertisers. Yeah. So... You need people on the platform, and the algorithms design serving you up the stuff you you've done an interest in. For example, I go on YouTube and I watch talk radio because it's full of people talking bollocks. So I'll go on there just to kind of see where are they going now? Like this is nonsense. So I watch it in a negative way. But every time I go on YouTube, it's talk radio, talk radio. Pete Hitchens pop up, who I can't stand, um, and then it's other people popping up, and um, it's. You can see the algorithms going, you want to see this, you want to see that. No, yeah. No, I'm, I'm watching it negatively. Yeah, so definitely. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you get dragged down that rabbit hole. Yeah. So, do you feel like that is the reason as to why there are so many conspiracy theories circulating now compared to when, like I said, when I was growing up, Foot and mouth disease was early 2000s, wasn't it, when Tony Blair was Prime Minister? So yeah. smartphones were pretty much non-existent. I think you were lucky if you had MySpace back then. There was no there was no iPhone. There wasn't even an iPhone 3 when foot and mouth was about. You know, the, the internet was coming up. But when you look at how much it's risen within the last 10 years, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, you know, smartphones now, there's probably... I'm pretty sure, undoubtedly, there's more smartphones on this planet than, than human beings. So the fact that it's so easily accessible, and I feel like that that's probably an area that they tried to address in The Social Dilemma, was what stage are we going to have to get to before there's going to have to be some real tightening and regulations implemented with social media companies in the way that it's used, because it is going to become surely more and more dangerous because how even as mark zuckerberg who's someone who's a multi-multi-billionaire surely it would become financially unviable to hire that many people to monitor billions of people who are using smartphones and social media do do you feel like that has been the main problem with this virus compared to anything that's occurred in in the past with the conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories have been around for hundreds of years. I mean, the first smallpox vaccine in the late 18th century, there were conspiracy theorists around that. They thought, because it was trying to inject people with cowpox to give them immunity, that people were kicking off because they thought that the kids were going to turn into cows. 
it's like obviously that's a while ago we were a bit less informed but um it's there's always been conspiracy theories especially around vaccines um and in 2011 the film contagion it covers everything it even covers the conspiracy theories jude law like you know your textbook trying to basically um financially benefit from spreading misinformation yeah for Scythia and things like that. So they touched on it then, and it's always an aspect of it, but like you pointed out, the amount now of social media and how easy it is to spread information. It's actually getting to a point where you're seeing deep fake videos. Um, I mean, they're not that sophisticated yet, but they'll get better. And it's going to get to a point where people's assessment of reality is going to be up. Yeah. It's quite worrying what the power of social media is yeah i know and it, and it's something that i i've tried i mean i know that i don't have a big platform compared to full respect to kai who brought you onto his platform because he's got over twenty odd thousand followers very well respected and influential within the music industry but it's something that i'm just trying to, to push in a positive way more than ever is social media you know not not going off on a tangent too much without COVID-19 is having a massive detrimental effect on people's mental well-being because they're just not following the right pages. Like, mate, all of the pages I generally tend to follow are ones that are positive, business motivation, entrepreneur, stuff that I'm genuinely really interested in. If you sit there all day, you know, following, you know, conspiracy theorists who, you know, don't have factual information, you know, toxic influencer culture if you're consuming that on a daily basis it's it's going to soon sooner rather than later have a really negative effect on you and, and you know critical thinking is so important but like you pointed out if, if you're in a really negative mindset lost a lot um, and you're getting dragged down these rabbit holes it's it's going to be very confusing because you know they don't know what what the hell's going on but with um with some of the aspects of it there's, there's a real lack of consistency in some of these conspiracy theorists because one really major example it's been so many times is oh it's 100 percent doesn't exist they can't isolate the virus they, they, there's no evidence that it exists and then in the same vein, I mean, a few sentences later they're saying it's definitely come from a lab it's man-made you're like hang on that's par- paradoxical you can't have, you can't have it exist but not exist yeah and it doesn't like, make any sense and then he just threatened to get me done for murder, genocide, and treason. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> I know, it, it, but that's what I'm saying. I mean, we can laugh about it, but it's it's really not amusing because you know you're someone who's dedicating your life to try and you know Im- improve health, save people's lives, and then to be accused of being on the payroll from whoever's the high and mighty, whether that's Bill Gates or whoever else is apparently at the top. You know, on on everyone's payroll but um i know that a couple of people in fairness have left comments around the government and i do feel like this is part of the problem though is because historically the government especially in this country whether that's been the iraq war for instance at first we were told the iraq war is for legitimate reasons it was for um, weapons of mass destruction and then you had to be fair you had the likes of dr david kelly which conveniently committed suicide then you've had the financial crash then you've had god knows how many promises made by politicians that they then make a u-turn and i feel like that's part of the reason why people are going down that path as well is because historically 
politicians and, and governments have been so bad at deceiving people is that people think now, well, if you've done all this in the past, and I, I feel like as well, for instance, even though it's in no way linked, you had the likes of Epstein where blatantly there was cover-ups there with what he was doing with the child trafficking and clearly I don't think anyone can doubt that Prince Andrew knew and he had some involvement in it. But then to try and intertwine the two and say that COVID is man-made to cover up Prince Andrew being part of a VIP paedophile ring, it doesn't really add up, to be honest. You know, the linking there is just outrageously problem is number one there's been no real clarity with the policies I mean, I mean even in the first lockdown I was actually speaking to my sister earlier on today who lives in a province not too far from Wuhan and her and her husband have lived there for I believe two years now and they're both teachers and she and I actually asked her today I said what do you think is the fundamental difference between how China is pretty much back to normal now and even Wuhan looks relatively normal compared to the fact that we're still in this dire situation and that's where the origins of the virus came from. And there was just a couple of points I wanted to relay and if there's anything further you want to add, is that she said, and to be honest, my, my sister is actually probably one of the most outspoken people you'd meet. So I find it quite ironic that she went to China, one of the most repressive states out there in terms of how they control people and uh, the surveillance. But she said the difference is, and you could probably say it's helped, but it's actually probably morally wrong because of how controlled the Chinese people are, sadly, and how much they have been over the years with whether it's social media or just generally if there's a rule you follow it or x y or z may or may not happen to you when they had a lockdown for that four week period they had a lockdown there was no you can do this this and this it was i believe she said her and her husband could only leave the house once every two days that was only one of them and that was literally just to get essential shopping but the track and trace over there was absolutely light years ahead of what we have and i think that's one thing we need to recognize is countries like china or south korea are light years ahead in terms of um you know te technological um advances 
So obviously they're, they're far more sophisticated, which means I think there's cases where if you went to a baker's and they could literally track you from your bank statement, you would get an alert to say, there's been an outbreak here, you now need to self-isolate. Whereas here, there's people that get told you need to self-isolate and they'll say, no, I'm not self-isolating, I'm still going to go here, there and everywhere. So it, it seems like to me, just to briefly summarise, is when they had a lockdown, they did it straight away and it was a harsh lockdown and it was severe. Their track and trace system is a lot more sophisticated and I know there's a lot of controversy around, well, if masks work, then why are we in this lockdown? She said that literally every single person was wearing masks, so it was able to contain it. I don't know if you wanted to add any more points on from that as to why you feel we're still in this situation Uh, now. We still had, was it the Grand National or there was some form of horse racing? Yeah. Then you. Yeah, the Cheltenham Food Festival, I think. Yeah, it was something along those lines. So, you, so you've got God knows how many people interacting within such a short vicinity. Then you also had Atletico Madrid against Liverpool and Spain and Italy, as we know, in terms of their culture, you know, that it's, it's very intimate, close interaction, kissing, etc. And, and I think that's part of the reason why, isn't it, that they got hit so hard, Italy and Spain, because of... There are a lot of people coming in from Spain as well, but I came from Italy. All over Europe, uh, the, the virus that came and hit us was, was coming from all over Europe, being brought back in by holidaymakers. Um, so it was just ridiculous to allow that to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think part of the problem is, though, I really don't see there being a proper inquiry. And I, we've seen start to finish, the government ha- haven't held themselves accountable. And that's why now people aren't following the rules, even if London are in, London are in tier four, is because there's been no real clarity with the policies. Then there's been no consistency. They're constantly chopping and changing, but they won't actually admit. The likes of Matt Hancock get interviewed or Boris... And they won't actually say, you know what, we hold our hands up. It's the most difficult thing we've had to deal with. Brexit seems like a walk in the park compared to this. 
But no one's actually saying, you know what, we apologise, we've made a mistake. It's just they'll, they'll do the typical politician manoeuvre and dismiss the question and say, oh, no, actually, I, I, I think we've dealt with it quite well, when clearly we haven't. There's, there's, there could have been tens of thousands of lives saved if we actually listened to the scientific advice that was being given like months before when I believe Boris Johnson was missing Cobra meetings. Um, I believe we were massively... Lo- I believe we were massively under-resourced as well. So I think countries like New Zealand, I know that in terms of like dense population, they're probably not as densely populated. You know, they closed the borders. They had a lot of PPE equipment. And I think I think that's part of the problem why we're still in this mess is because the government have been a shambles start to finish. Therefore, when they try and now implement more restrictions and rules, people would just say, I'm not, I'm not fucking listening to you anymore because you've yeah, been, you've been shocking. Happening. January, February, and then gets to March. It's all over Europe. We see what's happening in Italy. That was enough of a warning sign to say, look, don't wait for it to happen. Do something now. Do it early. And we'll wait. And we're, I think in March, they reckon there was about 100,000 cases a day when, as we locked down. But that whole lag phase, in April, with like 1,000 people back a day. Now, the thing is, like, as you go through this tunnel, you've got all that time to buy back. Um, and try and get ready for you know the, the next wave because once you um, you know stop the restrictions or ease the restrictions, transmission is going to rebound. We knew that was going to happen, and they just did the same thing. It starts happening second waves around Europe, and then it hits us, and we're like, oh shit, what do we do now? And like, you've had so much uh, reference of warning before it happened. Yeah, what? Why do you think that is, and do you think it's just generally that? Clearly, these politicians that are in government now just aren't capable of doing the job. No, I mean, certainly, like, hide the fact that I never would have voted for these idiots anyway in the first place. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't have known how bad this was going to get. No, but I just thought they were crap anyway. But it is a difficult thing to manage a pandemic, especially if the UK was obviously going to not do too well with it anyway because of where, where it is. It's a major hub and stuff, but... We could have fared so much better if they'd just been competent and listened to the scientists. And the whole Dominic Cummings saga, yeah, it was months ago. That seeded a lot of people to lose confidence in. Oh, absolutely. I thought that. I thought there's there's no way that he can keep his job here when we were still in. I believe it was a lockdown, or the restrictions have had only slightly lifted. And for him to go and do that, I feel that was the turning point where the the vote of confidence evaporated, diminished overnight. Yeah. And now he's, now he's been kicked out anyway, but way too late. Because he insulted his girlfriend rather than, you know, breaking major guidelines. Yeah. So, just before we move on, um, a couple of more points around social media and, and some of the things that you're seeing occurring that you, you probably want to give more clarity around and um, kind of discredit the doubts. One point I saw the other day was, I think it was in Australia, a vaccine was being administered and they zoomed in and said, see how clever that is. Notice how they act like they are um, putting the needle in in the arm, but actually the, the needle disappears. And it's something straight away that was discredited. But the problem is um, there was a version of the video that circulated on Twitter and it had 20,000 retweets and likes, and that's how dangerous it is now on social media, how quickly it, it can circulate. But 
the simple fact is you only need to do basic research to know that using like a safety syringe in which the needle retracts into the body of the device after use, you know, that's been used for over a decade. You know, they protect medical staff and patients from injuries and infection, but it's not the first time that, that claims of fake needles have, have appeared since the vaccine rollout began. But what are the other main points that you're seeing that you feel really need to be clarified to just give people reassurance? I suppose the, the thing about vaccine scares, um, really, it's also cultural as well. You've got different vaccine scares in different countries, so it's, it's not even like a, a, a major sort of thing. You've got heavy vaccine stories in France, but then here you've got the NMR uh, autism scare. But um, the, the science behind that, thoroughly, you know, proven. We've got over a million children now that have been studied for a link and they've never found anything. But it's almost like that, that science never really needed to be done because if people know the history of what happened there, and what is so important, people know the history of the MMR vaccine scare, is um, once you know the history, you'll be like, oh, right, well, why did he even come up with any more experiments? So uh, a doctor called Andrew Wakefield had been conducting experiments and formulated a study where he wanted to try and prove MMR was linked to autism. And as it turned out, um, the, the whole study he did was like 12 children. The parents started looking at the study and would start to question the information that had been included because they were like, well, if this represented our children here, that's not that's not true. He was fudging results. And then he told the laboratory, um, what they were trying to prove is if there was live measles in some of the samples that were taken from these children because they wanted to prove that they were autistic because of this vaccine. And his own laboratory, a guy called Dr. Nick Chadwick, had um, done all the testing and he found absolutely no evidence at all. He told him, he had an argument, and he was like, no, no, and he still went uh, public with these results that didn't exist. Very strange thing. But then it all emerged that he had a pattern for... Um, his argument basically that the combined jab was what was causing the problems. They wanted to do it with single jabs. And he filed patents all over the world and he was going to make a fortune if he was able to discredit the MMR vaccine. So once you find out how fraudulent it all was and that he was desperately driven by money, there were many in the community at the time saying, what is he, what is this guy doing? And his own postdoc who actually did all the experiments. Um, and then he suddenly realised that the whole thing was a complete fraud. And he's like a celebrity in the vaccine world. He earns a fortune. Um, and it's like, I don't think a lot of people realise the history of what happened there. See, that, that, that's, a great, that's a great point that you raise there, is there's no doubt there are, there are some conspiracy theorists who are genuinely passionate about trying to discredit some things, but if you're a conspiracy theorist purely for financial gain, that's your only incentive, well, clearly, are, are you really a conspiracy theorist? Because you're just, like you say, exploiting and taking advantage of people who are vulnerable in, in some cases. I'm not saying that, you know, if you're a conspiracy theorist that you're not mentally stable because that's an unfair thing to say. I've, you know, I've got close friends that in some respects are conspiracy theorists and I'm not patronising them or discredited in everything they believe. Uh, but no, it, it, it's a really fair point. So the, the next thing that I wanted to come on to um, around vaccines was a point that some have raised um, is why, purely as an example, someone who is young, healthy, doesn't have symptoms and is an advocate of progressive medicine, um, 
they're concerned that there may be a mandatory vaccine or there's, there's digital passports which will say if you're going to go to this country then you need to prove that you've had the vaccine and that's where people are casting doubt about oh, is it an element of control why should I have to have a vaccine if if I'm say young healthy I would rather use natural remedies I mean purely as an example for me I would take the vaccine because although most of the time I, mean, I, I eat either plant-based or I eat pescatarian I train four or five times a week but I've done a hell of a lot of party in the past few years and some of the stuff I put in my body I don't really think I'm in a position personally to sit here and say I'm not going to have a vaccine because of what I'm going to put in my body and I think that goes for a lot of people as well um, to yeah, be honest I was just about to this point uh, that, that you're talking about people putting stuff in the bodies like certain drugs and stuff there's, there's a lot of um, people who are injecting botulinum toxin into the face and having sunbeds but like Botox stands for botulinum toxin it's one of the most dangerous toxins known to man but they're happy to have that injected in the face they don't rigorously go and look online how safe is it and all that they just trust the fact that it's, it's regulated um, but they're happy to do that and not really know about it as far as, I, yeah. as far as I, yeah, so what would you say to encourage anyone out there who doesn't feel it's necessary to take the vaccine someone who is you know a staunch advocate of progressive medicine you know 99% of the time they don't really get ill say for instance someone who might um, engage in meditation fasting eat like a really strict diet train hard and actually might say and to an extent, you, you can maybe understand as to why they would say, well, I haven't been ill. What, why, why should I have a vaccine? What, what would you say to them to encourage them to consider at least getting it? With, um, with an infection, I mean, the R number that everyone's a lot more familiar with, the, the higher that is, such as like, I think, uh, COVID's around three, um, the higher the number of the population needs to get to what's called herd immunity. And I'll get, I'll get onto that today. Um, measles example, or probably the most infectious disease we know to man, it's got an R number of about 18. And that number means how many people, on average, one person will infect. So to get to herd immunity for measles, we need to have 95% of the population vaccinated because it's so infectious. Now with COVID, we reckon that's going to be around between maybe 60 and 70%. So if we can get to 60 and 70% of the population vaccinated, then we'll probably get to this herd immunity. Um, and the whole point of herd immunity is it's there to protect, protect the people that can't be vaccinated. Immunosuppressed patients with cancer, for example, um, people have certain reactions that they do they're not going to be able to receive them. Um, and it, it's important to get to the point where you have this herd immunity. The whole point of that is it, it's not a vaccine isn't to just make sure you don't get ill. It's also to stop that you an infectious person transmitting. You've got an asymptomatic portion of the population that are just knowingly spreading it around and if they're vaccinated then the idea is that they won't be able to do that yeah so it's important to vaccinate the people who can do, do you feel that with the route they're trying to go down is naturally if you are elderly or, or vulnerable with underlying health conditions that you can't prevent so without dropping any names i have a friend who bless her she had her spleen removed a while ago which means that her immune system is suppressed so even if she was to get a cold that can develop into a really serious chest infection so for someone like her who 
actually, you know, she looks really well. You wouldn't think that she has any underlying health conditions. Someone like her might have the vaccine. Is the hope, and I know that we'll have to wait and see how it develops, that the elderly will get it first, people with underlying health conditions, and they will then see if later on down the line it's still necessary for us to get it. Do you feel that it would actually go as far as mandatory or would it just be highly advised? What what do you think will eventually happen? The first thing is, like, we're in a pandemic of the shittiest year ever. People really want to just get the vaccine, get on with it and get, get on with their lives. So I'm, I'm really surprised that people are, like, trying to, you know, clutch at straws and, and, and are fearful and things because it's been the worst year. So, uh, especially for people in the music industry as well, they should really be to get rolled out quickly. Um, so, in terms of being healthy, um, sorry, going back to your, your, the last part of your question, what was that? Um, it was it was mainly around. So, do you feel it will go as far as a, man, a, a mandatory vaccine for people like my age, who are twenty six, not considered high risk? At all. So they're doing it in phases. So what they're doing is that the very first top of the list is healthcare workers and people who are in care homes and then care home workers. And they're moving down this list of the phase. They're tagging them the over 80s, the over 70s, who are vulnerable. And they're moving the way down. And what I think will happen is once you start to see deaths and hospitalizations drop significantly, and your hospitals are no longer seeing many patients come into hospital. Do you remember most people who have COVID don't go to hospital? Uh, once that stops and that's you know, significantly reduced, restrictions will start to get eased and things will just start to get a bit more back to normal. And this is before we've even got to vaccinating you know, people who are 40 or below. Uh, we may have introduced herd immunity by that point. But the thing about the immunity passports is the government and the pharmaceutical companies are completely separate from you know, Emirates, for example. If Emirates don't let you fly, that's their choice. Uh, you'll have to fly with Ryanair, because I'm, I'm pretty certain Ryanair will let you fly even if you had a boat, but, you know, some companies will probably... <laughs> <laughs> So, you can't, like, if a country wants you to be vaccinated, like, yellow fever and the various others you have to have, that's their discretion, and that's tough, because, you know, that's not to do with pharmaceuticals, it's just making the vaccine and getting it out there. Yeah. And the government is, is doing what that does, but, um, yeah. kind of a bit tough on the Munich passports thing. Yeah. So considering historically there have been vaccinations for, as you say, smallpox, was it in the 18th century? And then there's been, correct me if I'm wrong here, if I've mentioned any that aren't vaccinated. So you've got diphtheria, tetanus, anthrax, cholera, plague, typhoid, TB. So why do you feel there are so many people challenging this vaccine and the virus as a whole do you feel like it's linking back to social media but what is the difference here compared to historic vaccines obviously i've covered the the whole the the really strong vax people out there um which are separate i mean i think it's you know people have legitimate concerns about the speed of these vaccines i don't don't have any issue with that i think people are right to ask that question because they've learned all along this year it usually takes 10 years or more um, but what's, what people need to understand is, is what's being done in terms of speeding it up. And I've always thought, of all the time I've been working in infectious disease, I've thought, if we get hit by a pandemic that's bad, then I reckon the tech and the science and everything will be 
absolutely impressive in terms of how quick it will it will get things going. How they respond with a vaccine, they'll just beat all records. And I thought that would always happen. They've paralysed things, so they've tested enough people in terms of getting clinical trials set up in normal times for patients and getting the drugs, uh, sorry, the vaccines uh, made in the lab and everything. Everything's sequential. It takes a very, very long time. And a lot of it's waiting around the red tape, things to be signed off by the regulatory bodies. It just takes a very long time to do all that. That's not just waiting around for long-term effects, because long-term effects from vaccines are extremely small. Yeah. Um, the short-term effects we monitor, we've done that in abundance. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to ask was, as you rightly said there, and I appreciate, you know, even though you're clearly pro-vaccine because that, that's the nature of your work. Obviously, if you were anti-vaccine, it wouldn't make much sense with you doing the uh, the role that you do. But people have questioned how quickly it's been rolled out. But from what I've read, I understand that because this is just COVID-19 is part of a part of the coronaviruses. There was already research and development taking place anyway. It wasn't like all of a sudden they literally started to to try and develop a vaccine once COVID-19 hit. How do you feel, um, or how do you know that, that, it, that it's been kind of rolled out as, as quickly as it had? Because people are saying, well, how is it that, you know, that the due diligence is being ticked off so quickly? How is it that the regulatory bodies are passing it through? Are they rushing it for the sake of trying to, you know, rec- recover the economy? If you could just talk us through in terms of reassurance, how you feel it's been done so quickly, if that's how you would... Yeah, cons- so, so MERS, MERS five years ago had an outbreak in South Korea that was very concerning, and I think that seeded Oxford University at that point to think, right, let's get a MERS vaccine. MERS is a coronavirus, um, pretty similar to this one, uh, in, t- in terms of genetics. So it, it already had this platform development from five years ago, and they got to a point in January where they just needed the genetic sequence of this new one to actually just readjust it to match this particular virus. They already had a platform there, so they hit the ground running very quickly. Now, that's the that's the type of vaccine that they have where it's a, an, a non-infectious, harmless virus taken in their spike protein. And then the messenger, messenger RNA is radical technology. It's about a few years in development, and they've been looking at it for cancer treatment as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, I could go into the details about how, how they work, but it's completely different. It's, it's a piece of, it's like a transcript almost that allows your cells to make the protein. It's not infectious at all, but it's got no virus there. It's, uh, it, it's a radically different way of making your cells produce the, um, the antigen. Okay. So that, again, that speeds things up significantly as well. It's got a speed of a brilliant new technology there. Yeah, I was going to say, when, when you look at the technology now compared to the 18th century when Edward Jenner was trying to uh, develop a vaccine, I think the the quality of labs nowadays is probably significantly improved compared to what he was working with. <laughs> so just on the point of progressive medicine, though, a lot of people will say that as a society, have we become overly reliant on wearing masks or vaccines as a way of resolving things now some people might say just to briefly reiterate if i'm really healthy and i go down the route of doing really in-depth research around natural remedies if i look after myself i know you said it's still to be to be determined whether or not people my age who are low risk would need to have the vaccine as well as like the pharmaceutical side 
what would you recommend people to do in, in terms of their lifestyle to just generally, you know, look after themselves if they don't want to necessarily go down the route at first of either a vaccine or, or whatever else? Yeah. So that's got really nothing to do with diet as you do a kid. Um, and in terms of as you get older, the amount of vaccinations you need are less and less anyway. There's a seasonal flu jab, travel vaccines and things. You may need your booster here and there. But um, yeah, it's great to have a really strong immune system. People got to remember that you can be the healthiest person in the world and get taken down by an antivirus. We've seen plenty of examples of mm. very healthy people getting uh, really ill with COVID, even ended up in hospital. Yeah, well, there's a there's a gentleman from Birmingham uh, called Simon Fan, um, and obviously I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning his name because it's been public. It was in the BBC News, and he was a champion bodybuilder. I believe he's only in his forties. Absolutely impeccable physical condition. Owns his own gym, and he was in a um, in induced coma for nearly a month, and I think he nearly died twice. So. Clearly, I know that, you know, overall, we are at less risk, but I think that's why, generally speaking, a lot of people are a lot more complacent, and I'll hold my hands up once again and say I've probably been complacent and a bit careless at times. I've not been to any illegal raids, but I might have been to, you know, an odd gathering or not always worn my mask in a shopping centre or a public train. Sometimes I do, and to be honest, now even more so after speaking with people like yourself, and it's not me being, I'm not paranoid, I'm just thinking, you know what, there's an old lady stood a couple of feet away. I don't know if I could potentially pass something on to her. Yeah, definitely. The next point I wanted to come on to was um, another argument people have had uh, about wearing masks. So, especially when the majority of masks you see people wearing are ones you could purchase for literally a couple of pounds from the likes of Super Juggle Boots. I'm not sure, obviously, how much you know about masks, but obviously, if if you invest more in a mask, it, it provides more protection and it, and it makes more sense but how much benefit do these you know cheaper masks actually bring and would you still personally still highly recommend people trying to wear them as, as much as possible indoors protective and the reason they're protective is 
uh, especially when you're both wearing one, is, yeah, we all know that viruses are extremely tiny, they're nanometers in size, and they could get through the fabric, but it's about droplets, and droplets will contain many thousands of virus particles. Yeah. And that gets caught in a cloth mask, which it will do. That's a big community of, I guess, city of viruses that can stop from just landing on someone's face. So, um, it's, it's just a very simple physical thing. Like, you could, you could be your mouth and you cough and sneeze. This is a permanent thing whilst you're in a shop or traveling. Mm. I don't sound like I'm so dismissive of them because I wear a mask when I need to, and that's a small part of the time that I'm lying. You know, it's like sometimes in a shop, sometimes on a, on, when you're traveling. Um, and I know that people say, oh, I've got medical conditions and things, but I'm sorry, the vast majority of people who use that use don't have them. Um, you know, I've got a policeman friend in Newcastle who said that he's never seen one exemption letter from anybody about not wearing a mask. Um, and I've seen plenty of people on the tube, even tube workers, and they're clearly very happy people. They've chosen not to wear a mask because they've been duped by social media as far as I'm yeah and as, as i say i've I've certainly not not been perfect and it's something that i'm probably a bit more mindful about now and um you know i'm sure i'm sure we've all probably bent bent the balls at, at, at some point you know yeah definitely and, and and that's one thing i know that we we discussed on the phone is personally for me just like with the position i mean i know that i'm obviously you know only up and coming not in an influential position but a lot of people have asked me are you, are you coming to this illegal rave or that illegal rave but you know at the end of the day I'm, I'm running a business and you know i've not I've not always been perfect in the past with you know one or two scenarios where i've maybe you know partied a bit too heavy but you know as, as you grow older you realize you do have a responsibility you know i, I work for Will power who runs uh lab 11 you know he you know he's got other business partners as well and you know seeing their club non-operational and then you know illegal raves going on up the road i mean just apart from the fact that it's a potential super spreader and like we saw in manchester if there's no security and you're letting everyone in and there's probably going to be the odd you know dodgy individual then you know that that poses a risk to you know women who might be sexually assaulted there could be weapons it's not just about saying oh you know we want our freedom we want to be able to rave and dance it's the reality is a lot of the raves you know they're, they're you know they might have um unofficial doormen that, that might do it but it but it's not it's not the point really i think to be honest you know i know, I know that it's frustrating and i know that it's tough and i want to dance as much as the next person i, I do events i want to party but in the grand scheme of things I accept that it is really, really tough for people mentally. I'm not taking that away or devaluing that. But, you know, I don't really see that it's an absolute necessity at the moment. And It certainly isn't. And like we've seen on Instagram, these things have been advertised. And they're not even the... Uh, there's, obviously, there's the illegal warehouse ones, which I've seen videos of nearly 2,000 people, it looks like, and which you just think, Jesus Christ, that's like... That's going to spread like wildfire in them conditions. But you've also got legitimate clubs uh, in areas which have listed events on resident advisor, listed the guidelines that follow it, table, sit down, all this kind of stuff. And then they appear on Instagram and it's just like a normal club night. And you're like, there's so many things wrong with this. There's, there's people we know who are running these things and certain DJs playing them. There's the punters who are turning up. And then there's resident advisor that got a million pounds from the government support. And I'm not saying they know what's going on, but they should be aware that those, those club nights are 
and not adhere to the guidelines, and they're advertising tickets for me. Mm. So there's a big problem. And like I say about the super spreader thing, we've got all these spiking cases in London, the southeast, and like yes, the variant is is involved in that, but I don't think those illegal parties are helping. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we can't use that as a scapegoat because, obviously, you know, we're both part of the the, the music industry as well. I'm sure, you know, there's there's other there's there's other things to consider as well, whether or not it's uh, education or just you know even just generally a lot of people deciding not to wear masks. But like I said at the start of the podcast, you know, you're just here to educate people. People can make their own minds up about what what they what they choose to do. But um, without putting any unfair pressure on you, the, the biggest question, the biggest question on everyone's lips is, of course, when will we be back to normal? So even though you know you have an abundance of experience and, and knowledge, you know I think it's probably unfair on your likes of uh, Patrick uh, Valance and, and Chris Whitty, to be fair to them. Um, now, to ask when are we going to be back to normal because we still have to wait and see how people react to the vaccine and what happens with herd immunity but when do you realistically see us returning to some form of normality i mean i always knew that christmas was going to be terrible but quite early on because you've got a new pandemic it was we knew how serious it was and i knew that the winter period it was going to be shit good mate fingers crossed so let's move on now to to music to finish the podcast on a positive note i mean to be fair what you've just said there is, is pretty positive all, all things considered but i've seen that you're you're a resident dj for, for summarized sessions and, and you managed to put on one or two socially distance events uh over the summer so if have you had a chance to produce much this year or have you been pretty preoccupied obviously trying to deal with the pandemic Oh, uh, right, okay. Yeah, so the, the things we have done are live streams, and we're hopefully going to do uh, another one in January, but 
again, yeah, we did get to do any events. Um, it was never really looking like it was going to happen, but mm. we just wanted to be hopeful. Yeah. Uh, Production-wise, yeah, I've, I've made a few tracks this uh, this year. Um, I found motivation for it a bit waning because when you're not playing your tracks out, yeah. You know, when you play a track out, you get a good reaction. You like, you really um, pushes you want to do more. But uh, if that's not happening, I'm not even sending tracks out to labels. No. I just think, you know, I mean, you'll know what happens. It just feels a bit pointless. Yeah, I think that that's one thing with with me working with with Fleur, who's, I've, I've worked with her for probably the best part of two years now, like incredibly talented DJ, but she's been producing since March last year after she came off tour with Hannah once. And um, she's got a couple of, she's got two good releases coming up, but um, I've just said, to be honest, especially because they're working towards a breakthrough, um, there's not really much benefit in, in releasing at the moment. Um, you're far better off, I feel, just building a strong catalogue of tracks and then, you know, working out who the right people are you need to get in contact with, A&Rs or label owners, because bear in mind, you know, no one's really DJing at the moment, no one's touring, so it's the best time to try and get a hold of artists who normally you'd never be able to get a hold of because they're always in different time zones, they're just so busy with schedules. Yeah, absolutely. So, in terms of like your your passion for house music, um, what what were the first kind of first raves you you were going to, whether it's domestic or or, or abroad? What really inspired you to go down that path, as well as doing the science as well? Growing up, I used to listen to Darren Styles. This was probably around 2005, 2006, but it's at that period where you, you, you're, a, you're, you're a sheep. You end up following the same as what everybody else listens to. And, you know, I was dressed there in my fake Stone Island, my Air Max, listening to Darren Styles, And I thought, I don't even like this music. It's absolute trash. But recently... <laughs> but the funny thing is now I've revisited his album Skydiving I actually appreciate it more now that I'm not being forced to listen to it feeling like I have to go down the back of a field swig from a bottle of Strongbow and act like I love happy hardcore <laughs> funny actually i had um morgan bennett who's a and r for patrick topping's label trick and he's also his tour manager i think he's probably the same age as me or maybe a little bit older um 
he worked for Shindig, which probably would have been only a couple of years ago before he started working for Patrick. And he worked his way up at Shindig, but I didn't realise that it went that far back, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. They were the warm-ups for the bigger acts, but they had amazing DJs on them. Those DJs themselves were... I just loved how it was totally underground, really cool. Mm. It was sounded stuff. Yeah. Who are you really digging at, at the moment then, whether it's breakthrough artists or up-and-coming or anyone that's established that like your, your go-to? God, there's so many. Um, I mean, I've been a, fa- a big fan of George Smedles over the last couple of years. I just think he's, you know, he's, he's got his nation. Yeah. Every track I do almost. He's just proper cool-sounding stuff. Mm. Uh, I, like, I like East End Dubs and Rossi. I think that's where that music's really cool. Yeah. It's, and it's the minimal side and uh, it's, it's just really nice groove stuff. Yeah. Um, and then there's obviously the more, the more mainstream stuff. I think Barry Sorossi is awesome as well. He's, um, he's been prolific in production this season.
good producer. I mean, I think Rossi had been producing four or five years. East End Dubs has been at it for a long time. And I think people look at these artists and think they literally just come out of nowhere and they've been producing for five minutes. But a lot of these guys have been chipping away behind the scenes and not really getting much recognition off anyone for years. But sometimes you get that you get that bit of a you get that bit of a break, you know, getting signed to a good label or a big artist backs your tracks. Uh, when I was speaking to Darius at Brighton Music Conference, Fleur was on a panel with him and he was saying that I think he sent some demos to Steve Lawler or he played just before Steve at Sankey's in Manchester. I mean, sometimes those real life-changing moments where you take a bit of a risk, you play your track just before the headliner, the headliner says, fucking hell, who's that by? Oh, it's by me. They sign the track to their label and next thing you know, you're talking tour in the world but um i think that's pretty much everything mate i just want to say really appreciate the time i know it's been over an hour and a half but it's definitely a conversation that needed to be held so um I didn't realize that well, so. yeah yeah it's been, a, it's been a pleasure mate uh, it's been really good to chat to you it'd be good to have a beer when things do go back to normal oh definitely mate much needed after this year yeah what's that mate i said definitely much needed after this year Yeah. Yeah. Nice one. Take care, mate. All right. Have a good evening, then. Bye, bye.